All right, well, if you'll have your Bibles open, we're in 1 John chapter 2. Our passage this morning is going to begin in verse 18. And as you know, we've been moving through these four um, building blocks or pillars or elements or components, whatever you want to call them, uh, that, are, that are all attributes or characteristics of fellowship. And I made the example last week that it's kind of like four legs to a table. You have to have all four. And so we've moved through all of them. And so this week we're looking at the subject of doctrine. And uh, the way John has presented uh, the subject matter of doctrine is uh, in an emphasized, escalated way. Now, when we think of Bible doctrine, we think of 1 John, we need to remember how he opens the book up the first uh, four verses in chapter one of his letter is all about doctrine. It's all about us remaining faithful and adhering to uh, what we heard from the beginning, what we believed in the beginning, what we were told about Jesus, what we saw, we heard, and the apostolic message about Jesus, the testimony, uh, the doctrines that they had been taught. And so it's all about adhering to that in order to remain faithful or to remain in fellowship. And from there, we kind of move through some subjects of confessing sin, being obedient, not being in love with the world. And now he is returning to the subject matter of doctrine. And as he's doing this, he is talking about it in the same breath of this being the last hour. And so he's talking about some things that are occurring in this last hour and how it is directly impacting doctrine. And so uh, this is why it is more of an escalated uh, escalation of subject matter. And it's really difficult for us to sit there and look at those four and think that one of them is more important than the other. But at the same time, it does us very little good to have pledged allegiance to false doctrine. It doesn't do us much good to confess and be obedient and be godly under false doctrine. So doctrine is the first thing. Is the, it's the truth that we actually have accepted and believe. And it is a necessity that Christians have maintained their doctrine. And of course, there's all kinds of subjects in that big word. But here we're talking specifically about what we know about Jesus, who he is, what it is he actually did, and what it is he offers us. That's the gospel. And so it has everything to do with Jesus and what he accomplished, the words and works of Christ. And so as we get into this passage, we're going to read it together here in just a second. But as we do, uh, just pay attention as we read through these verses of how John sets it up because he, he uh, first, in, right at the very beginning of verse 18, he refers to us as his children. Uh, and so, children. And so it's kind of like, kids, I need all of you to go to bed. And so you heard that you and children. Children's plural. And so when he's saying the word you, it's plural. He's talking about the congregation or all of these Christians that know him that he is ministering to and uh, his relationship he has with all of these churches, probably in Asia Minor. But it's been spread around the world and now we're holding it in our hands this morning. And so uh, children, 
And so he will talk about his children in the plural, you. But then he does something even more endearing because repeatedly he is going to be including himself with his kids. That he is a part of us. And so the language becomes we and us over and over again. And so let's read the passage together. Begin in verse 18. It says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come. We know from this that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. But you, all of you, have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? He is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son can have the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. Verse 24, What you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He Himself made to us, eternal life. I have written these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. The anointing you received from Him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie. Just as it has taught you, remain in Him. Now in this passage, uh, there's really two things happening. We're being told underneath all of that, two things. One is that there's false doctrine being taught, and that the people teaching the false doctrine or believing the false doctrine have left. And he's going to do that as he moves through with three big pieces uh, in this passage. One is he talks about the last hour and the Antichrist, and so uh, many Antichrists. And so one thing we need to learn or get a handle on if we're going to understand this passage properly is what is he talking about when he says the last hour and the Antichrist and many Antichrists have come? What's that all about? Then he talks about the Holy One, how the Holy One has anointed us and this, uh, this anointing somehow teaches us. And What is that all about? And then he gets very specific about the false doctrine that's being taught. And so those are the three big pieces of this passage. But in the middle of all of that, at the, at the core of it, is the fact that someone's been teaching something that's wrong and people have left. I remember a man came into our church uh, visiting that had been a member of this church years ago. And he left the church on bad terms. He was upset about something and he left. And he came in and he visited and he's left again. He didn't come back again. But he came in and, and uh, some folks were asking me about it. And I said, well, he, he left the church. And he was upset about this and that. And when I said that, you could just see people's antennas going up. Because they were like, hmm, something was wrong. Something happened. Somebody did something. Somebody didn't do something. This church has got some problems. And all of a sudden you're like, I'm not sure I want to be a part of this. I need to hear more. And your antennas go up. So you can just imagine what it would be like for teachers in a church to be in disagreement about doctrine and leave. 
and they take their family with them. And one of the daughters is dating this guy, so he leaves, and now his mom's left with him, and people are starting to separate. It's alarming. And so this is a real problem in the church. I will tell you that the video we watched is the end result of that in the first century. Because what has happened now is so many people have left that they've got their own buildings. They've got their own denominations and sects and cults and they're all over the world. And so now you just get to pick your flavor of where you want to go on Sunday morning, Saturday morning, whatever. And so you don't have to worry about this church getting all tore up because half those people, they won't even come here because we're not the right flavor. And what happens is, is that the general public is completely ignorant about things that are so simplistic in the Bible. The, this was shocking because these were adults and none of them really, I mean, a couple of people, they cut them off and they said something that sounded like it was right, you know. So uh, maybe some of those folks were Christians or had a good exposure to the church, but most of those folks that we were watching really just did not know much about who Jesus was. It was almost like they were being caught off guard and being asked about something that they'd never even even really given a lot of consideration to. It's the end result of what's happening here in our passage. So the first thing uh, we have here is, I should have done that. That was our, that was our text we just read. <laughs> but um, let's talk about what he means here in this very first opening. Uh, this first component here is children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. So you and I both know that there's an Antichrist coming someday. And so they did too. Obviously they had been taught that. That was part of their education uh, in, in Bible studies. Antichrist is coming, but guess what? Even now, many Antichrists have come. And because they have, this is how we know that it's the last hour. So what is he talking about there? Well, we all know that the answer is lies within the context of this letter, but I just wanted to show you that um, it might be easy for us to just say, well, he's talking about the end times, but the end times may be too broad. We might need to be more specific than that, because when we talk about end times, there is this wide variety of events that occur. When Jesus was at that wedding and at the beginning of his earthly ministry and the, they ran out of wine at that wedding in Cana. Mary came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, we're out of wine. And he said, woman, it's not my hour yet. What was that word hour? In chapter 12 of John, Jesus is predicting, and you remember as we went through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus kept predicting his death, burial, and crucifixion. Remember, he just kept telling him. And in one account in John chapter 12, Jesus is predicting his death, burial, and resurrection. And he said, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So John 12, 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so when Jesus is talking about the hour, when he said, Mary, it's, my hour is not here yet, he was talking about something that was in the future. Here Jesus says, it's time. And he's talking about the cross. So the hour to Jesus in this situation was the cross. 
in chapters, that's in chapter, that's in chapter 12 of John. In chapters 5 and 6 of John, when Jesus talks about the hour, he's talking about the future resurrection. He's talking about when people are going to be risen from the dead. Um, here's the verse. It says, an hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And so here he is talking about something in the future and it is the resurrection and he's also referring to it as the hour when this is going to happen. Incidentally, you'll notice that it says an hour is coming and is now here. He does something very similar to what John does in 1 John. John says, uh, children, it's the last hour. You've heard Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is why we know that it's the last hour. When Jesus said that, He was getting ready to be uh, crucified and rise from the dead. And Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first. Remember how blessed is He who partakes in the first resurrection. It's the second resurrection you don't want to be involved in. That's the resurrection of the dead to judgment. The first resurrection, resurrection you're going to be raised and judged by Jesus. God's going to look at Jesus and He's going to see what Jesus did for you. That's the first resurrection. The second resurrection is when you stand before God with your sin. That's the, the second death. And so, in Jesus' mind, what He's saying is, is this, this last hour is coming when there's going to be people raised from the dead. But you know what? It's, we're already in that hour. I'm getting ready to be raised. I'm going to be the first fruits. And so what John is saying here in our passage, He's saying... You know, we know the Antichrist is coming, but even now, it's the last hour. Even now, there are many Antichrists. And so, the definition by far for the Antichrist is just that it means to in replace of or against. So it's the opposite. It's teaching something that changes the gospel. It's saying something about Jesus that's not true. It changes the meaning. And so... Uh, in our passage here, we have to look at the context. What is John talking about? He's talking about a period of time that they were in right then. The period of time when they're alive, they're on the earth, Jesus hasn't came back yet, and the church is facing opposition. The teachings of the church is under attack. And at that moment in the first century when John wrote this, it was true. They were in that last hour. Well, so are we. This hour is the same hour that we are in right now. And at the fruition of this is this coming Antichrist. But until that guy comes, there's a whole bunch of guys paving the way. And of course, this hour actually comes to its conclusion when Jesus returns. And that's why in the very next verse, in verse 28, we begin to talk about the return of Christ. And so it gives us this picture. When John is talking about the last hour, what he's basically saying is, is 
we're in the last hour, this period of time we're in right now. And it's going to conclude when Jesus comes. But we know that there's going to be opposition to the church. There's going to be many antichrists. And then eventually the, the man of perdition, the, the man of lawlessness, this godless man who's going to come and basically try to wipe uh, Christians and, and Jewish people off the face of the earth. But that's not necessarily bad news because the fact that it's all happening is evidence that you are in the last hour and the last hour concludes with the return of Christ. Look what he says in verse 28. We read, we read to verse 27. In verse 28. So now little children remain in Him so that when He appears, we may have boldness and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. And then he goes on to talk more about the return of Christ. So in the context, John has went through these four major components of remaining in fellowship. And it's kind of built up to this last one where he's talking about doctrine. And he's put it into the bookends of the last hour that things are coming to fruition. Uh, Jesus is going to come back. But in the meantime, this is what we are experiencing. We are experiencing false doctrine and opposition. And so what he does is he begins in verse 20 to un, uh, unfold uh, what God has done to help us during this period of time. And he talks about how the Holy One uh, has anointed us. There in verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And coming with that is knowledge. Remember in 1 John 5.20, it talks about how God has given us understanding. And so uh, just think of the beautiful thing. God opened Lydia's heart and she believed. Um, Jesus was in the room with the disciples and He opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. And the two men were walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and, and He opened their eyes. And the, the disciples were with Jesus but they didn't recognize Him. He opened their eyes and they saw and recognized Him. You know, it's the picture of God taking someone who is blind and giving them sight. And so here, John is trying to explain to us that in this situation that we're in right now, God has done us a wonderful thing. You remember Jesus said that when I go, uh, you know, I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send the comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to come along beside you. He's actually going to indwell you. And he said that it's actually good if I go because it's to your advantage for him to come. And so what's happening here is, uh, you know, Paul's baptism of the Spirit is probably the same as John's anointing of the Spirit here, uh, Paul says that for, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It's talking about how we were placed into the body of Christ. I think the baptism that Paul says is basically the same thing John's talking about, the anointing. But here, the anointing carries kind of a different idea. And the idea is that when you have anointed a priest, you've anointed a king or a prophet, what you've done is you've set them apart for some kind of special ministry. And so what the Bible is telling us here, uh, and it, it goes on, you know, uh, it starts in verse 20, it says, you have uh, an anointing from the Holy One, you, you all have knowledge. 
And then in verse 24, it says, What you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And then look in verse 27, he says, The anointing you received from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. His anointing teaches you about all things that's true, just as Jesus taught you. Remain in him. And so what it's trying to tell us here is that um, God has set us apart for this ministry of the gospel. We are ambassadors for Christ. And in the process of doing that, uh, it's, it's a war. There's a, there's a battle. There's an angelic battle going on that we're so ignorant of. Occasionally in the Bible, he, he, un, he pulls back the curtain and lets us see what's going on. But by and large, we don't really even fathom what all's going on behind the scenes in the angelic world. But it is real and it's occurring. And on our plane, on what we're dealing with, you know, we, uh, we try to live our lives the way we're supposed to and, and we try to have a Christian witness with our friends. But there is an enemy who is working against everything that God is trying to accomplish. And that's true for this, for Christianity in the world. It's for Christianity in America. I mean, just look at the condition of Europe. Western Europe is a disaster as far as spiritual things go. It is so sad to see that happening over there. And America is not far behind them. And this attack, this battle, even comes on this church and it comes to you personally. Because he wants you to fail. He wants to mess up everything you're trying to do. And he works against you all the time. And so what the Bible is trying to tell us here is that the Holy One has done us something wonderful. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Uh, there the Holy One in the Old Testament is always God. Um, sometimes in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Holy One of God. Um, but who's going to send us the Holy Spirit? Listen to this. John 14, 26 says that the Father sends the Holy Spirit. And then in John 16, 7, it says, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. That's not a contradiction. It's, it's clearly showing us that they work in concert with each other. You think of the, of the creation of the world, you know, how all three members of the Godhead were present and active and participating. And then when they formed man, it said, let us make man in our image, right? It's in the plural, let us make man in our image. And so uh, when it comes to the Bible, or when it comes to God, and we start trying to talk about who it is that's, that's teaching us. Well, God teaches us. Jesus teaches us. The Holy Spirit teaches us. You can't say, the Holy Spirit does this, Jesus does this, the Father does this. It's not like that. The Father and the Son are one. And uh, the Holy Spirit works in concert with, with the Father and works in concert with the, with the Son. And there's unity in the Godhead. So this is an activity that is occurring from God for you. And to help us understand how God's doing things, He has presented Himself to us in three people. But there's only one God. His purpose is united, and His actions are always united. He knows exactly what it is He wants to do. And in this regard, it has to do with helping us, coming alongside us, and to keep us centered and to keep us grounded. I'm not sure I understand exactly how this works. And it, because uh, it's, it's supernatural. You know, I don't know how the Holy Spirit can be in me and Gene and Tria and Marsha and Wes. I don't know how He can be in all of us all at the same time and be the person of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how He does that. 
How do I get Jesus in my heart? You know, I don't know how God does all these things. So let's not be silly and try to pretend like we understand all of the magic, majestic things that He does. Listen to everybody. And, and when we pray to Him, we don't have to catch Him up to speed on what's been going on in our lives. He already knows. He's real time. So God's amazing. He's great. And fortunately, He has brought us to Him. And, uh, but what it is, is, is so many people ask questions about God. And while you're trying to answer that question, then they start bringing up UFOs and dinosaurs. And, you know, it's just trivial pursuit, really, uh, most of the time. But if, if you are being confronted with, with, a, with a teaching, uh, when you really want to know what the truth is, and you come to God with humility and sincerity, there is this action, this work of the Holy Spirit where He guides us, He illuminates, He teaches us, and He strengthens us, He encourages us. And so He's telling us that in this last hour, there's going to be a lot of opposition to the church. The doctrine is going to be under attack. We are going to be under attack. That's why we need the full armor of God. You know, the shield, the arrows. You know, it's, a, it's picturesque of the things that we confront and deal with as believers. And we're foolish if we forget the fact that we are actually, you know, in a, in a battle here. And so in this last hour, God has given us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is alongside us. And He is somebody that we can rely on and, and, uh, and depend on. And He, he, he helps us pray. He, he helps us pray when we don't even know how to pray about things. And uh, He's the one who gave us all of these spiritual gifts and, and uh, has placed us in the body and given us our special places that, that we do within the body to serve each other. And, and uh, just, if I've done anything this morning, I really just want to lift Him up and just, just the fact that the Holy Spirit is indwelling us in our hearts and uh, he is, if you think about the, the beautiful picture here is that this Holy One is, um, is holding us over until Jesus returns. It fits the context of his return. You know how the Holy Spirit is, is the down payment, the assurance of his return, the assurance of our salvation. Uh, it tells us that we've been sealed. Ephesians 4.30, we've been sealed until the day of atonement. Uh, so it is... Um, until the day of redemption. And so it is, uh, the, the Holy Spirit is, has locked us in and we are eternally secure in the hands of God. And one of the reasons we know that for a fact is because we have the Holy Spirit. And so uh, finally, the last component here is that uh, the false doctrine is being taught. And... Uh, I think I'm supposed to give you that one. And then, uh, let's look at this one. I think it's important for us to understand that uh, false doctrine comes from demons. It is the doctrine of demons. And when we think about temptation, uh, the devil has watched man for centuries and he, he knows how, how we think and how we're wired. So we're sitting ducks. Um, this is why we need God. It's the picture of us getting under His wings. Why we need the Holy Spirit. You know, we are completely helpless without God. 
And this is the problem because the God of this world, the ruler of this world has deceived the world. And their eyes have been blinded and they can't even see. They don't even understand. They don't even realize that they're blind. And you know some people how proud they are. But they don't even realize that they are deaf, dumb, and blind. And so here is this verse. It tells us that now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last time, some will turn away from the true faith and they will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. And so here we're told in that verse just alone, 1 Timothy 4.1, that some Christians will walk away from the faith and be even seduced by these, uh, by these lies. And maybe you could think about a point in your life when someone has deceived you and let you down. Maybe it's a family member, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. Maybe you try to go into business for somebody. <laughs> but uh, maybe you can think of, I'm at, like, what about an antique rage, road show? You ever seen an antique road show? The guy's got this thing he's got and he thinks it's worth something. It's a, it's a phony. You know, so the, the idea is, is that you, know, you buy into something that's not true. And all that comes with that, that bad decision that you've made. And so uh, when it comes to religious matters, it's even worse. The scars run so much deeper because, you know, a, a pastor of a church can do something wrong or say something wrong and causes a lot of damage. You know, Sunday school teacher, when, you're, when your mom that you've always looked up to, she does something wrong. And so uh, we do put each other up on pedestals and... Uh, there's a reason for that, but at the same time, we have to remember that we're all frail, we're all sinners, and we all fall short, and so uh, we want to love each other even when we do stuff that's wrong, but here, it's talking about the, the, the empty feeling you would have when someone's pulled the carpet out from under you, a friend has betrayed you. And this is the, the picture God wants us to see when we have been deceived by these demons, these people who are not our friends. What is it that they're teaching? In verse 22, it kind of gives us an idea. He gives us a little smorgasbord of some of the things that are being taught uh, in verse 22. He says that, Who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? Okay, so right there you've got someone who is denying who Jesus is and what Jesus did. So they're basically saying it's not true. Here's another one. He is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So here's, here's someone who is denying God altogether. And then in verse 23, it's no one denies the Son can no one who denies the Son can have the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. You know, there's so many people that think that, uh, that do not claim to have allegiance to God or have allegiance to Jesus, but they still think they're in a good standing with God. There's so many people like that, isn't there? I um, wanted to talk just real briefly. and um, This is my sermon. I have redone this thing all week. All week. I woke up in the middle of I went to bed thinking about it. I went to, in the morning, I woke up working on this sermon. 
going around in my head. And so I decided to do this. Um, when it comes to the doctrines of demons, there is the big three. And these encompass the entire planet. These are the three biggest philosophies or false philosophies that the majority of the world's population has fallen underneath. They are false, and they are going to take people straight to hell. Atheists and agnostics are people who believe in the evolutionary theory. Evolution denies the existence of God. It is pervasive. It permeates every area of Western thought. This is what is being taught to our children in public schools. Evolution denies the existence of God. Eastern thought uh, is Buddhism, Hinduism, Shintoism, Confucius. It's the Unity Church. It's Scientology. Massive, massive, millions and millions of people are wrapped up in Eastern thought. It basically teaches that all living creatures have an inner spark of God, an inner spark of divinity in them. And the goal is uh, the goal of your life is to escape the material world. And this occurs through cycles of reincarnation. And so these transitions go from higher to lower based upon your karma, based upon the good that you did or the good that you didn't do. But your ultimate goal is to become one with this inner spark that's immaterial be in nirvana, this uh, state of blissfulness. And so when you start talking to someone about Jesus that's involved in Eastern mysticism, they're just going to think that you don't have the big picture. You're right. You're on the right path. Keep doing what you're doing. You'll keep migrating. Your soul will keep migrating up. They'll smile at you, put their patch on the back because they see that you don't see the big picture. This is a doctrine of demons. And Islam, Islam teaches that Jesus was a prophet, but that the Muhammad was the last prophet. And that salvation comes by serving Allah in a sufficient way. And so they believe that uh, Allah is the same God of Abraham. But they deny who the person of Christ is. They deny that you have to have Him for salvation. Instead, they believe it's obtained through obedience, and that obedience is modeled by Muhammad. And I don't want to take a lot of time with all of these things, but uh, you can see that these the masses of people in the world have bought into these deceptions. And none of them have anything really to do with Jesus at all. And so the majority of people on the planet are already being swept away and perishing, and it has got nothing to do with Jesus. What John's talking about is how people are like selling you fake Rolexes. They're coming at you like they are Christians. Like it is true Christianity. So for the few people who are actually interested in the Christian faith, they're being sold a Rolex. But it's not a Rolex. They're much more sinister. 
You know, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses have led so many people astray. I think the more contemporary issue today is uh, what I call the God of compassion. And we've made God this God of compassion so that He, uh, all He really cares about is social justice. And so we're so busy running over here for this cholera. We're running over here for this flood. We're over here helping the homeless. We're over here feeding the poor. We're over here trying to get you know cops to treat people right. But none of those things point you to the cross. In and of themselves, none of those things are wrong, obviously. In and of themselves. But it pushes people away from the real issues. But I think that by far the most damaging doctrine that has infected every entire, it's it's infected entire denominations and is probably present in just about every congregation is the system of works. One degree to another. Salvation by works. Rather than substitutionary atonement. You all know what I do for a living. And so I'm going to close with this example. Um, And when the radio's quiet and folks are behaving fairly well, the long nights can get pretty long. And so there's a lot of time spent in those police cars talking. And you talk about everything. And um, I remember this one fellow I was riding with. And I asked him, he went to church. And then he told me that he uh, grew up here in Cincinnati. His parents are Catholic. And by the way, what I'm getting ready to say is Roman Catholic is a Roman Catholic flavor to this story, but it's really not the point at all. So don't misunderstand me. Um, but uh, his parents are Roman Catholic, and so uh, uh, he went to Catholic school. You know, so many of the public schools here in Cincinnati are terrible. And so a lot of parents will pay extra money to put their kids in Catholic school just to give them uh, a chance. And that's, that's him. And so I asked him, I said, well, I said, what do you, um, what do you think about Jesus? You know, who, who is he to you? And he said, well, I, you know, I believe in him. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And I said, do you believe he rose from the dead? He said, yeah, I believe that. I said, okay. He said, he said I think he's the son of God. I said, oh, wow. So we're, we're all talking the same language here. And then I said, well, do you believe that he is God? And then the wheels fell off. The wheels fell off because then he said, well, no. Jesus was just a man, but uh, God did all of these incredible things through him and God raised him from the dead. And so it was so close. Because you see, you have to know who Jesus is and what it is that He has accomplished and what it is that He offers us.
when we um, when we talk to folks, uh, you never really know what they believe until you ask them, and you, you have to shut up and you have to let them talk. And when they when they talk, that's when you really hear what it is they believe and what they do or don't understand. And what this fellow did not understand was that Jesus had to be God, because. The Bible teaches substitutionary atonement. But you have to understand who Jesus is as a person. It's critical. Because, Don, are you a sinner? Alright, so... Right, so in my job, um, I have put my life on the line for people many times. Many times. And where I would have died for that person. Fortunately, that hasn't happened. We're still here. But many times. So let's just say I'm going to put my life on the line. I'm going to give my life for Dawn. I can't pay for Dawn's sin. And Dawn, how could you possibly take your sin and put it on me? That's impossible. You can't do that any more than I can give someone else my sin. Only God can take sin off of one person and put it on another. So you have to have God for this to even actually happen. But then you can't take your sin and put it on me and that do you any good because I'm a sinner too. Who's going to pay for my sins? You see, this is why Jesus is God. Because He's the only one who is pure and clean and perfect. He is the unblemished Lamb. God come in the flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God. God came here and died for us on the cross. And we can have salvation by trusting in Him because He paid the price for our sins. And so when we talk about the Gospel, we have to remember that when we take our eyes off of God and we take our eyes off of the Bible, bad things begin to happen. And... The people that we saw in the video are people who a long time ago were maybe raised by parents who a long time ago started listening to something that was wrong. And so as Christians, uh, our doctrine is absolutely the most important thing that we protect. Let's pray.